my Govanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And one of the things that Tolkien is really good at is reusing old stories, old characters, old ideas in really new ways that just totally change the dynamic of how the old story or character plays out. And he does it in you know, in a lot of different contexts and, and things like that. And one of the most obvious examples of it is Turin. Turin is, in a lot of ways, a, a huge borrowing from the old Kalevala story of the Tale of Kulervo, which I've done a video on the book that came out, you know, within the last few years, on the story of Kulervo that Tolkien was kind of reworking and which eventually formed the germ of the Turin story. But Turin himself then gets recycled in a way, I think, as well. And so that's the topic of this video, because, in my opinion, Turin kind of gets recycled into the Lord of the Rings, and specifically into one family. Faramir and Boromir are kind of two of the halves of Turin's character. So I'm going to get into that and explain it, but there's a little more to the puzzle than just the two brothers, and I'm going to get into that as well. So... We're going to take a look at Turin's character, how Faramir and Boromir represent aspects of his character, and then the third piece of the puzzle, which really kind of brings the whole thing together. Before I get to it, though, I did want to mention next week, the week of September the 20th, is of course the week of Hobbit Day, which is September 22nd, and all of us YouTubers that have this group going on, you've probably seen some of our collab uh, projects before. We've done many playlists where we've all kind of put stuff together and then linked to everybody else's videos. We're doing that again this year. This is 2021. The video next week is going to be a little bit late, therefore, because it won't be released on Monday. It'll be released on Hobbit Day. So don't be surprised when a video doesn't show up next week. But it, there will be a video that week. It'll just be for the Hobbit Day release that we're all taking part in. That said, now let's take a look at Turin and how he gets recycled sort of as a character in The Lord of the Rings. So two key aspects of Turin's character that are really important for this discussion are his pity and his rashness. Those are really kind of the two fundamental aspects of Turin's character and his entire character arc is kind of a battle between these two characteristics because on the one hand his pity leads him to be you know to do things the right way but then on the other hand his rashness leads him in bad directions and he, it all ends up coming to a head at the point where he kind of abandons the pity half of himself and finally just goes all out with his recklessness the reason well, before I get into how that plays into Faramir and Boromir, let me give a few examples. As a youth, he shows a lot of pity to Sador, who is a servant in his father's household, who was maimed in his foot and therefore has kind of a limp, and as a result, Turin calls him Labadal, which we are told means hop-a-foot, basically. And the narrator tells us he doesn't do this out of scorn, he actually does it out of pity, and, and Labadal, or Sador, understands this, and they have a very good relationship. This ultimately kind of gets subverted at the end of the story where he will end up killing Brondir, who is also lame, and will 
you know, basically call him a name, not in pity, but in scorn, referring to his own lame foot. And he calls him Clubfoot. So the reversal of that pity is a really big element of the story, but his pity comes up many other times during the story as well. And in fact, Fendulas, the elven princess at Nargothrond, who falls in love with Turin, mentions to Gwyndor, who had rescued Turin earlier and brought him to Nargothrond, that pity would ever be the way to Turin's heart. And so she is seeing something about Turin that is really fundamental to his nature. And unfortunately, it's kind of his abandonment of Fendulas that kind of puts him down the wrong path because Glaurung fools him and he goes off on the wrong road. And the next thing you know, he's lost Fendulas. And then he ends up finding his own sister, not realizing who it is, and takes pity on her. But then things develop again, and again he ends up turning his back on pity and eventually does really horrible things. And this comes to his rashness, and this is... We have many examples of this. For example, as a youth, he, at the age of 17, wants to go out and start fighting on the marches of Doriath against the forces of Morgoth because he wants to, you know, maintain some kind of... He wants to open connections back to his homeland where he can possibly get messages from his mother. Uh, So we see the early beginnings of his rashness, and then he has this whole episode with Cyros, who is a not-so-nice elf who was a counselor to King Thingol, who you know pokes fun at him, and then he chucks a cup in his face and basically breaks his face. And then he, you know, gets attacked by Cyrus later and revenge, but he overcomes him and then chases him around naked through the forest, and then Cyrus gets himself killed trying to escape. So, you know, he's a hothead, and he does a lot of really stupid things. Later in Nargothrond itself, he will end up recommending that they build a giant bridge from the door of Nargothrond, which is right at a river, across the river so that they can more easily get their armies out and make war. Whereas previously, the entire theory behind even constructing the caves of Nargothrond was, we want this to be a secret, not something that Morgoth can easily find. And of course, that eventually leads to the downfall of Nargothrond, because Morgoth does discover where it is, and they can't prevent the armies of Morgoth from coming in because they've built this bridge. And he even, you know, like, backs up his own... He doubles down on his own rashness because when messengers come from Cairdon the Shipwright, who had gotten messages from Ulmo himself saying, you should really get rid of this bridge, Turin's like, yeah, whatever. So Turin very definitely has this rash side where he is very much a forward-in-the-battle type of thinker and his entire philosophy is to be in the open, not really using secrecy and constantly at the forefront, in the thick of it. And in some ways it works for him because he's a really great warrior, but it ultimately always backfires. So these are really two key aspects of his character, and it's his rashness ultimately that gets him in trouble because it's his rash anger at Brondir that leads him to just murder him straight up, and that leads to his own suicide when he realizes how stupid it was and what he had actually, you know, that what Brondir had told him that made him so angry actually was true. So he's got this hot-headed, rash, reckless nature and this really strong element of pity. And these two are kind of warring with each other throughout the story. These two elements are really strongly represented by Faramir and Boromir because 
one of the things that we learn about Faramir from the narrator, who theoretically is at least semi-omniscient, is that he is a man whom pity deeply moves. And this is a really key aspect of Faramir's character, too. We see it in a lot of aspects, because when he meets Frodo and Sam, at first, of course, he's really cautious with them because he doesn't know what's going on, and he basically tells them, like, you know, I don't trust a chance meeting with strangers in these times, but once he learns what Frodo is actually doing, because Sam kind of blunders that information, Faramir is, you know, he tells Frodo straight up, if you, if you took this thing on your own, you have my admiration. If it was kind of forced on you, you have my pity. Because he recognizes the real hard thing that Frodo is trying to do, and he's like, I wouldn't want to have to deal with that. And... Later on down the road, of course, he deals with Eowyn. Eowyn is a character who is psychologically just in a really bad place. And Faramir really shows a lot of pity to her as well. And, you know, does what he can to bring her around, which eventually succeeds. The rash half of Turin, of course, is Boromir. And we see this in multiple ways throughout the story. For one, whenever he shows up at the Council of Elrond itself, he is very bold and forward about, you know, projecting the the greatness of Gondor and how awesome it is. He's willing to admit when they're kind of in a pinch because the forces of Mordor pushed them across the river and, you know, took Osgiliath. But he's also, you know, not really willing to take a lot of advice or a lot of... He's not, you know, he doesn't want to act like he's asking for help militarily, but he's also not going to turn it down. And this kind of echoes Turin saying, we don't need to cut down no bridges. Um, but also, of course, whenever he eventually tries to take the ring from Frodo, it's all about, his, his. he goes on this long, you know, speech where he's talking about all the armies he would raise and the alliances he would make and how he would drive the hosts of Mordor. And, you know, Boromir is much like Turin, the kind of guy who goes out in the forefront, wants to just bring battle to the enemy. And we hear this from the voices of third parties in the story. And we, you know, we even hear a comparison of Boromir and Faramir in this way because it says that because Boromir was more reckless and forward in, in that kind of a way, he was by some seen as braver than Faramir, but it wasn't really true. They were both equally brave. It's just Boromir was a lot more reckless about it whereas Faramir is more reserved, more cautious. And, of course, we get Faramir. One of my favorite lines from Faramir is, I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness and all of that. Boromir is the kind of guy who really loves the action of the military hero for its own sake, whereas Faramir very explicitly kind of goes against that and says, I love only that which they defend. I don't love the warrior for his glory or any of this stuff. So these two aspects of Turin seem to be pretty well matched up in both Faramir and Boromir. The really interesting thing, though, is where the third element comes in, and this this kind of came up in the context of a conversation I was having with one of the other Tolkien YouTubers, and the comment was basically like, okay, I can kind of see where you're coming from, but like he's still a really crummy character, and he makes a bunch of really horrible decisions that, you know, it doesn't even seem like Boromir is that bad. And I mentioned, well, I think a lot of that comes down to family history. And then it sparked the idea. The family history for Turin, of course, is the fact that he was separated from both of his parents at a very young age, and that really shapes his life in a lot of ways. 
Hurin is either dead or captured. Morwen sends him away and can't really leave because she's with child at the time. And then she never really catches up. And Turin is always really broken up about this. And it has a lot to do with his decisions to make war against Morgoth. It's partially out of revenge, partially out of a desire to free up the pathways to open up communications. Or maybe even get Morwen out of you know her home to somewhere safer. And then, of course, you have more stuff in his history that ends up just being really bad, like the loss of Fendulas because he tries to go back to his family and maybe rescue them, finds out his family is gone, tries to rescue Fendulas. That doesn't work, and then, I mean, it's just complicated mess. But the funny thing is, the family history part actually gets mirrored rather strangely by Denethor. And Denethor, oddly enough, was married to a woman named Fendulas. And the interesting things that we know about Fendulas, or at least the more pertinent interesting things that we know about her, is that she died relatively young. And in the appendices, we are told that after Fendulas died, he became Denethor, became more grim. And the appendices basically imply this is probably when he started thinking more about the inevitable victory of Mordor and how he might be able to do something about that, and that's when he decided to look into the Palantir, and that's when things started to go maybe a little bit downhill because Sauron was twisting what he could see and, and putting a little bit of a shade on it. So we have this idea that Denethor, you know, he's the one who loses... A loved one, and the interesting thing here, of course, is that Turin was never in love with Fendulas, but it was still the loss of Fendulas in a lot of ways that defined his character after that point, because when he sees his sister, Neonor, after she had escaped from, you know, Glaurung and all this other stuff, and then, you know, she's just lying naked on the mound where Fendulas was buried, he thought she was Fendulas's ghost at first, and he's like, whoa, what the... And then takes her in, and you have to think a lot of that plays into his decision to end up marrying his own sister, not knowing that she is his sister. But then, of course, that kind of mirrors the whole thing of Fendulas dying early and this playing into Denethor's fall into, if not more pride, at least more folly, because whereas before... He had been prideful. We know from the appendices that he didn't really like the fact that Aragorn, under the guise of Thorongil, had a lot of the respect and love of his own father and the people of Gondor. He resented that and was very jealous of that relationship. So he was prideful already. But Aragorn, you know, that was a, a kind of a different thing. It's one thing to be jealous, and it's another thing to be foolish, because one of the things the appendices tell us is that none of the stewards really had dared look in the stone ever since the loss of Minas Morgul, because Minas Ithil, before it was Minas Morgul, because that stone presumably had been taken by the enemy. Denethor was the only one to do that, and you have to wonder how much of his own loss of Fendulas dying had to do with that. And so you have the pity represented by Faramir, the rashness represented by Boromir, but then just absolutely terrible decision-making due to the psychological stress of losing loved ones mirrored by Denethor. And so, now do I think Tolkien, you know, deliberately tried to recycle Turin's character in this way? No, I don't. 
But it's really interesting how this one little family of three people represents so much of what Turin represents. Now, this is why I think the Turin story is really, really one of the best things that Tolkien ever wrote, because Turin psychologically is just such a fascinating character, and his story is such a fascinating story. It's, you know, a lot of really important themes get played out in it, and that is... You know, that's why I think this kind of happens is because the themes are just so incredible that they're inevitably going to pop up again somewhere in Tolkien's fiction. It's just something that if you put that much work into creating that type of a story in this one area, you're probably going to use some of those themes again. But it's really interesting how those themes all kind of gel into one family of Denethor, Faramir, and Boromir and how that all congeals together. So that's that's just my thoughts on how these three kind of mirror a lot of Turin's own story and his psychological background. Now, again, like I said, I'm not saying that Tolkien deliberately did this as a way to, you know, recycle Turin or anything. But let me know what you think about the whole idea of how well these three kind of mirror a lot of Turin's life circumstances and psychology. And if you think there are any other characters that maybe kind of get the same treatment. I mean, obviously we have a lot of parallels with Baron's story and Aragorn and Arwen and also Frodo's own quest because Sam even mentions that. But I'm talking more about how the character the character gets kind of reused in some way, directly or indirectly. So if you have any thoughts on that, please do leave them in the comments below. Beyond that, if you want to follow me at Twitter at JRRTLore, you can occasionally get some Tolkien-related trivia questions. I'm trying to drop those about four times a week at this point. And if you really like the video, give it a thumbs up and share it around. Please also subscribe and hit that bell icon if you want more content like this. And of course, I'm also on Odyssey, Rumble, have podcast versions, and of course you can support me over at Patreon.com. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye.